0: Our reading from God's word comes from Psalm 72, verses 1 to 14. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. The mountains will bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. He will defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. He will crush the oppressor. He will endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. He will be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days the righteous will flourish, prosperity will abound till the moon is no more. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The desert tribes will bow down before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present gifts. All kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him for he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence for precious is their blood in
1: his sight. Amen. Our second reading is from Isaiah 32, verses 1 to 8. See, a king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. Each man will be like a shelter from the wind, and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert, and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the rash will know and understand and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected. For the fool speaks folly. His mind is busy with evil. He practices ungodliness and spreads error concerning the Lord. The hungry he leaves empty, and from the thirsty he withholds water. The scoundrel's methods are wicked, he makes up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. But the noble man makes noble plans, and by noble deeds he stands.
2: There is a tradition that Isaiah was, in due course, martyred. If he uttered this prophecy... The prophecy that Dave read to us, in public, in Jerusalem, it's not surprising. If many of his prophecies have been considered dynamite, this one is even more explosive than the others. Its implication is that the current leadership of the day is stupid and immoral and due to be replaced by something very different. So wrote John Goldingay in his great little commentary on Isaiah, on Isaiah 32, verses 1 to 8. The prophet clearly feels that bad leadership is having an adverse effect on the country as a whole. Everything is upside down. Idiots are in charge, and honor is paid to people who don't deserve it. To people whose thoughts are evil, whose words are foolish. To people who deprive others who are already hungry of food. To those who withhold water from others who are thirsty. Those whose dishonesty deprives the needy of justice. People are there as resources just to be exploited and bled dry. Rather than as citizens who need to be governed well and safeguarded from home. It's quite a political passage, really. Some of those things we read may ring bells with some of us when we think about our present government. But at least we live in a country where freedom of speech is allowed. When the governments have no accountability to the people they govern, the result is that the majority end up being oppressed by the minority who hold all the power. And when that happens, the only safe thing to do is to keep your head down. In that kind of context, good people find it safer to turn a blind eye to what is happening because they're afraid of the consequences of standing up for what is right. People don't want to stop and think about what's going on because the implications of that are too dangerous. It's far safer to ignore the persistent rumours that are circulating about the abuse of power. And the result is that noble people are afraid to speak out. When things deteriorate to this extent, then a country is in a very bad way indeed. And as John Golden Goldingay points out, if Isaiah had delivered this kind of sermon in public, criticising leaders of what looks like it was on the verge of becoming a totalitarian state then there would have been consequences. Isaiah 32 verse 8 sounds very fine. The noble man makes noble plans and by noble deeds he stands. Yet, if you live in the midst of endemic corruption, to stand nobly is a very dangerous thing to do. It can be immensely costly, both to you and those around you. And Isaiah in this passage holds up a, a kind of makeup mirror. To the face of the government of his day. And shows up all its faults and blemishes. And he does so by saying one day. A king will reign in righteousness. And rulers will govern with justice with him. And things will be so different then. It will be like this and not like it is now. John Goldingay again. Just judgment and the protection of the weak were the things that were lacking in Jerusalem. It's not a vision that's distinctive to 8th century BC Judah. That might be partly because a community is always in need of this emphasis, and partly because the temptations of power always push governments in the opposite direction. It offers a striking contrast with the job description for government in modern societies. It's not that our governments are necessarily unjust, but they do not place just judgment and the protection of the weak at the heart of their job description. Neither in Israel nor anywhere else has this promise been fulfilled. And therefore it gives us an agenda for prayer. Whenever we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Part of the dimension is to think, what does God's kingdom look like? And how does that differ from how things are now? Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. But Isaiah was not afraid to spell out exactly how God's kingdom was different from the kingdom of his day. And John Goldingay speculates that he paid the price for doing that. For us as Christians when we read a passage like Isaiah 32, it's natural for us to think of Jesus when we read of a king reigning in Righteousness. And as we read of the characteristics of his kingdom, that does naturally provide a standard against which we can measure the government of the day. And it's appropriate that we do so. Because the declaration, Jesus is Lord, has to be more than just an act of private worship on our part. Because when we worship Jesus, we acknowledge him as the King of Kings. And the Lord of lords. The one to which every government in the world is accountable. The one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. The one to whom all rulers one day will have to give an account. The standard of that kingdom is the standard against which they will one day be judged. There is no square inch. Of the earth over which Jesus does not say, this is mine. And as we read Isaiah 32, we see that one of the key characteristics of the rule of Christ is justice for all. Even or maybe especially justice for those who are poor and needy and vulnerable. It's always easy to retreat into a kind of private Christian faith but Isaiah 32 reminds us that there is an inevitable political dimension to what we believe and what we proclaim Jesus is Lord in the public sphere as well as in our private lives that can and should drive us to prayer and to engage with political issues at a national and a local level Yet at the same time, it would be wrong for me to preach what is a little bit political as a sermon and to give any reference to what it means for us to have Jesus as Lord over our lives. Since 1925, the established church has celebrated this Sunday in the liturgical year as the Feast of Christ the King. And we have Pope Pius XI to thank for that. Let me invite you to listen to what he had to say about the significance of this festival for ordinary Christians. If to Christ our Lord is given all power in heaven and on earth, if all men purchased by his precious blood are by a new right subjected to his dominion, if this power embraces all men, it must be clear that not one of our faculties is exempt from his empire. He must reign in our minds, which should assent with perfect submission and firm belief to reveal truths and to the doctrines of Christ. He must reign in our wills, which should obey the laws and precepts of God. He must reign in our hearts, which should spur natural desires and love God above all things and cleave to him alone. He must reign in our bodies and in our members, which should serve as instruments for the interior sanctification of our souls or, to use the words of the Apostle Paul, as instruments of justice unto God. Not for the first time I find myself reading something written by a Pope and think, that's good. So, yeah, Jesus is Lord out there. But if we're going to say Jesus is Lord out there, we need to be sure that Jesus is Lord in here. If Jesus is Lord, that means my life, lock, stock and barrel, belongs to him. I can pray for the reality of Jesus' reign to become more apparent in the policies and government of my own country. And indeed of the darker places in the world. But the one place where I have the capacity to enthrone him is here. In my own life and my own heart. That goes for each of us. And when that happens, that would involve opening my eyes to see what he calls me to do. Opening my ears to listen and respond to his word with obedience. Opening my mind to know and understand what his will is for my life. And opening my mouth to declare his truth with courage, conviction and clarity as Isaiah did. If Christ, as my Lord and my King, lifts me up to reign with him. If he instills what is noble and good and right in my heart by his Holy Spirit. Then he calls me. To be one of those people who makes noble plans and stands up to carry them through. Christ is my Lord and my King, that will entail living my life for him. And as well, it will also entail living my life for other people. And that is again an area where God's word becomes very practical and very challenging. If Jesus is not Lord of my life, that means to all intents and purposes I govern, or at least I think I govern, my own life. I make my own decisions, I take responsibility for who I am. Who am I accountable to if I don't accept the Lordship of Christ? It's no coincidence that the slide in church attendance in the UK has been matched by a rise in the attitude of individualism. Individualism is a social theory or school of thought that says that the interests of the individual are or ought to be ethically paramount. And correspondingly the term also refers to conduct guided by such a doctrine. The individual counts before anything else. And the problem is of course that when we think about the individual, the individual who's uppermost in our minds is me. You know, if it's going to be any individual that matters, it surely is going to be me. And so, individualism as a kind of ethical way of life becomes quite a, a self centered way of life. It says, My rights, my needs, sometimes even my desires are paramount, trump any consideration about the needs of others. And that, my friends, is not the way it's supposed to be. If Jesus is our king and if Jesus reigns in righteousness, he calls us to live our lives for him. And in practice, that means living our lives for others as well. How so? Isaiah says that when there is a king who reigns in righteousness, then each man will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm. Like streams of water in the desert, and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. If Jesus is Lord, each individual is not there for their own benefit. Each person in his kingdom is there for someone else to offer that support, that help, that shelter, that protection. We are there for each other in the kingdom of Christ. Reading those words, each man a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the storm, streams of water in the desert, the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land, I cannot help but be reminded of the response of so many people in Paris a week ago on Friday. When they heard gunfire, shouting and screaming in the streets and were warned to stay inside Instead of locking their doors and hiding in safety, there were so many people who opened their doors to let people in to find shelter, to enable those in danger to find protection. And there were those who went beyond opening their doors and put their own lives at risk by going out and helping in those who had been injured and some were injured themselves in the process. Not my safety that's paramount, But there are people out there in danger and I can help them. And it's a sign of the the image of God at work or the grace of God at work in that situation. There were people who didn't say, I must take care of myself. Whose instinctive reaction was to say, I must take care of those who need my help. That's the way it's supposed to be. And as Christians who declare that Jesus is Lord, we are called to model that to the rest of the world. What it means to live our lives in accordance with God's purpose. And that means opening the doors of our lives to others. Sometimes opening the doors of our homes to others. So that when people are looking for personal support, they find it here. Every one of us who is a citizen in Jesus' kingdom is called to be a shelter from the wind for somebody else, a refuge from the storm for them. We are called to be there for others. If, in the words of Psalm 46, God is our strength and refuge, a very present help in time of trouble, let's recognize that we, as the people who belong to Him, are called to be that very present help in time of trouble. To people who need it. Streams of water in the desert. To people whose souls are parched with thirst. If ever you've been in a really, really hot country. You know just how much relief a bit of shade can bring. A rock providing shade in the wilderness. We are called to offer that kind of shelter protection Safety to each other. And again, you can't avoid the implications of thinking about what what kind of welcome does that mean should be extended to vulnerable refugees who are feeling violence and persecution. That's an issue that so far has left Horsham relatively unaffected, principally because providing accommodation and shelter for asylum seekers is prohibitively expensive in this part of the country. But in terms of attitudes, we should be aware of that dimension to our faith as well. And yet welcoming the stranger starts simply with taking the initiative, greeting, welcoming, befriending, engaging, sharing something of yourself with someone you don't know. Maybe just inviting them out for a cup of coffee, or even better, inviting them home for a cup of coffee. I was away preaching this morning at Trafalgar Road, our sister church the other side of town. Brian White reminded us that that work started with Mrs. Fisher, a member here, inviting children from Horsham Common into her house to have Sunday school there. Gypsy children. Eventually he said, actually, you know, couldn't we have a mission out that side of town for them and so that people don't have to walk across from the other side of town to Brighton Road every Sunday to come to services. It started with someone opening her life, opening a home to people actually who were quite undesirable and a godly congregation and a thriving work there this morning. I spoke about Revelation 3.20, the verse where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door of knock." If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and eat with him and he with me. Reflecting on the culture of hospitality that prevailed in the ancient world, where it was virtually a sacred duty and a privilege to provide hospitality to complete strangers. The person at your door could be a god or an angel in disguise. In romance novels of the period, the hero of the story would turn up in a strange place looking for hospitality and be directed to a home where their knock at the door would be met with a wholehearted welcome. Their feet would be washed. They'd be seated in the place of honour on a couch. A fire would be lit, food and drink brought with the offer of overnight accommodation for as long as they wanted it. And when they left, they'd be given a gift by the host as an indication of what a privilege it had been to have them stay in their house. Many of us in our busy private lives would find it hard to find the time and the space For that kind of sacrifice. (coughs) Yet perhaps the fact that we lead such busy lives. That are insulated from other people. Is just a reflection of the extent to which our lives are governed by the prevailing culture of individualism. Jesus challenges that. He the man who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. invites us to be participants in his kingdom and calls each of us to be a shelter from the wind for somebody else. A refuge from the storm that's engulfing them. To be like streams of water in the desert to someone in need. Or the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land for another human being who needs to know that they are not alone. In the kingdom of Jesus, there are no individuals. There are just people who are there for one another. There's the body of Christ. There's the church. That's how it's supposed to be.
0: Let's pray.